On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, welcome to Advanced Bracket Management Part 2. I'm Bob Keebler, and I'll be your host. So far, we've talked about a number of smoothing techniques. In the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about several other techniques which can be very valuable to your clients. One technique that's been underestimated is the value of tax-deferred annuities. This is a perfect strategy for a taxpayer expecting a decrease in marginal rates. So your client is working. They're in a 28, 33, perhaps 35% rate, maybe 39.6. And once they retire, they expect to be in the 15 or at best a 25% rate. During higher bracket years, the taxpayer invests in deferred annuities, thereby reducing their taxable income and thus income taxes and their exposure to the net investment income tax. Later, when the taxpayer's marginal rate is lower, payments will begin. This smooths out the taxpayer's income, and then they have a, a lesser tax burden. So this is a very big strategy. Now, not only do the, is there a favorable bracket arbitrage, or positive bracket arbitrage, but they also pick up deferral in present value terms. Non-qualified tax-deferred annuities are not qualified retirement plans, but they receive a very preferential tax treatment under Section 72 of the Code. Contributions are made with after-tax dollars. Okay, so contributions are made with after-tax dollars. The earnings accumulate tax-free and are taxable upon withdrawal. Uh, the annuity can be fixed or variable. A fixed annuity pays a fixed interest rate, while a variable annuity allows for a variety of investment options. Now, so what you really get out of this, when you think through it, is I can avoid paying tax perhaps at 35% and later perhaps take this out when I'm only in a 25% bracket. That is a 10% arbitrage. And then when you add the value of deferral in, you can see why this is so important. Now, the other thing that most of us do not fully understand, including myself, is in the right circumstances, you can also buy a non-qualified tax-deferred annuity in a trust, for example, in a bypass trust. A by if the trust is for the benefit of my wife and my children and my grandchildren, um, there is an exception that would allow the trust to own a non-qualified tax-deferred annuity. Um, and these are going to be the things we have to fully explore in the months to come because what's happening here, what is very important is we need to understand that for an a trust or a state that retains income, it's going to be taxed at a 43.4% rate Add in the state tax rates, we're well over 50%. So then we're well over 50%. So it's going to get real ugly real fast. Now, another technique which we believe will be popular going forward is the use of Section 453 installment sales. Um, in an installment sale, I sell in exchange for a promise to pay. Someone is going to pay me over a period of time. So if, I, if the asset's worth $100,000, they'll pay me $10,000 a year plus interest for 10 years. If correctly executed, the taxable gain is recognized by the seller is going to be deferred until payments come in. Now, the goal here is to fly below the radar. The goal here is to try to keep yourself below the $250,000 exemption or threshold for the 3.8% tax and hopefully below the $450,000 exemption for the 20% capital gains rate. So if I sell over time, I will be able to fly below the radar. And I know I keep using that um, that term, but I, I really want you to envision uh, what you're trying to accomplish. What you're trying to do is keep income as low as possible. Now, so I sell to an unrelated buyer a, an asset, and that unrelated buyer pays me over a period of time. 
if this asset were worth $3 million, instead of having a $3 million gain in one year, maybe I'll report $200,000 a year over a period of 25 years. And that might be better for me from an income tax planning standpoint. Now, 453 of the code is, is very, you know, it gives us a statutory scheme that's very regulated. And IRC Section 453 allows for the deferral of taxation on installment sales, but there is a $5 million annual limitation or a $10 million annual limitation for a married couple. The gain is generally deferred until payments happen. However, there is depreciation recapture. So if you sell a building or property where there's depreciation, you're going to have to recapture that. The sale from a taxpayer to a non-grantor trust or child receives a basis increase, and that basis increase is equal um, to the purchase price. So if a child or non-grantor trust were to buy this, they receive a basis equal to what they promised to pay, not what they've already paid. Now, the law recognizes that could be abusive because then the child could turn around and sell the property and not have to pay any tax. And, and his parents wouldn't pay any tax until the child paid them back. So the government added IRC Section 453E2, which basically provides that a sale by a related party within two years results in realization of the original deferral. In other words, the parents are going to report that original deferral on their return. However, there is no realization of the original gain if the sale is spread out over two years and a day. Now, so this is a very powerful strategy. You can set up, for example, um, some people might set up a non-grantor trust and sell property to that trust, get that step up in basis, wait two years in a day, and then sell the property. Now, there's, there's problems. There's economic substance problems. There's buyer in the wing problems. Um, but if you do wait the two years in a day, it's going to be very hard for the government to assert step transaction. Um, you just want to make sure that you do not have a, a definite buyer in the wings that's already been identified and is privy and part of an overall plan. Now, very underestimated is the power of life insurance. There will be a major renaissance in the use of life insurance in the United States for tax planning purposes. And basically, life insurance, death benefits are tax-free. I can pull out my basis out of a policy and not pay any tax on that. And I can also make strategic policy loans with no tax implications. Now, so basically, where, where I can use life insurance is, for example, if I was found myself up in the 39.6% bracket and I need another 100000 of cash, but I have a life insurance contract with a million-dollar cash surrender value, I could borrow against that. I could take that money out instead of having to come up with 100000 pay income tax at 39.6. I can smooth that out. Now, I can also buy life insurance, for example, in a bypass trust. And simply, if the beneficiaries do not immediately need the cash flow, uh, they can wait until the insured party dies, and then all of that return is tax-free. You're basically using life insurance as an alternative asset class. So we'd be using life insurance as an alternative asset class. Now, um, basically, another strategy with life insurance, which many people are starting to use, if I have a life insurance policy on my life, when I die, my wife can then use the proceeds of that insurance uh, to pay the taxes on a Roth conversion. So basically, this the use of life insurance can also help us to smooth out income by avoiding drawing from a retirement account and to allow continued tax-free growth. Now, policy loans are generally not taxable. There's an exception if the policy is a modified endowment contract, and, that, and basically that would turn the loan into a taxable event. 
Now, finally, let's talk a little bit about income shifting. One very important part of tax planning going forward is going to be moving income from parents' tax returns to children and grandchildren's returns or moving income from a child's return to a parent's return. Um, just yesterday, I spoke to a client who's helping his mom, and he's giving her about $3,000 a month. And I said, let's do this. Let's put, let's create a trust with your mom as a beneficiary, and then when your mom dies, have it go to your children and grandchildren. And he goes, well, Bob, how does that work? And I said, we can pay out the income of the trust to your mom. She'll pick it up on her tax return. Her income is basically just Social Security. And then that's only to be taxed at worst at a 15% um, rate, okay? So that's the worst. And he's at a 39.6% rate. So there's an arbitrage of about 24 points. This is a big difference, okay? Uh, not only that, she'll have some medical expenses that we can also offset. Now, so the key transactions in income shifting would be making outright gifts to children and allowing them to report income subsequently. Uh, the problem with that is you've just made an outright gift to a child and you might take some of the wind out of their sail um, we can use LLC and partnership gifts. Um, we can move LLC units to a child, and then they would receive a K-1 and report that income on their return. Um, we can make gifts to non-grantor trusts for the benefit of family members. In the non-grantor trust, that's a trust where it actually pays its own income tax, but if the non-grantor trust makes distributions to, for example, children, grandchildren beneficiaries, the children or grandchildren have to pick up that income on their returns. Now, also there's ESBIT's QSSTs. Um, ESBIT will not shift income at all. It's going to be taxed at the highest rate. But QSSTs, actually, if I set up a QSST with S Corporation stock for my children, they're going to have to report that income on their return. Now, uh, we'll talk about distributions from existing trusts. Go back and look at trusts you already have, and can we take distributions out of those trusts and sprinkle that across children and grandchildren, reducing the lower effective tax rate. Uh, that could be a very big planning technique and just be very efficacious. Now, finally, the next round of planning as we move forward will be evaluating the conversion of grantor trusts to non-grantor trusts. Um, if we have grantor trusts today under Revenue Ruling 2004-64, we all understand we're making additional tax-free gifts, so we're making additional tax-free gifts. However, if we convert those to, from, not, you know, from a non-grantor trust where my parents are paying the tax to a grantor trust where distributions are going to be sprinkled to me and my children, we might pick up a lower overall tax rate. Now, that probably makes no sense. I talked to a lawyer friend of mine just yesterday. He has a client worth about $25 million who wants to convert his trust from a grantor trust to a non-grantor trust, and that makes no sense because the, the grantor trust, you're, he's paying income tax on behalf of his children, which then reduces his taxable estate. But what if his net worth was only $8 million, and he and his wife had plenty of unified credit to shelter their estate? Um, if that is the case, then we're, what we're up against is we should evaluate going over to a grantor trust because now we can sprinkle the income across a broader class of people and reduce the lower effective income tax rate. So those are all very important things that we want to think about. Now, Roth IRAs um, require a lot of attention right now. Um, first of all, I think that everyone has to pay attention to the efficacy of Roth conversions. Uh, for the lawyers, when I teach in my two-day class, 
is you at least need to say to my wife and I, have you talked to your CPA and financial advisor about doing a Roth conversion? Check that you put on your checklist that you had that discussion, and you might be able to move on. Now, some lawyers are very good at these Roth conversions, and they'll want to help you analyze that. Other lawyers um, will not look at those things. But the key for the lawyer is just to raise to raise the alarm that have you talked to anybody about this? At least make sure you, you've done that. Now, what are the benefits of Roth conversions? Lowering my overall taxable income in the long term. If I do Roth conversions strategically over time, I can avoid the large R- RMDs at 70 and a half because there are no RMDs at 70 and a half. I also want to look at tax-free withdrawals for beneficiaries. How will that help me? And Roth IRAs will help me with funding the bypass trust. What's really in vogue right now is our Roth conversions by asset class. On January 1st, 2014, for example, you have a client convert all 10 mutual funds in his IRA to separate IRAs and then flip them into the Roth. And the ones that go up in value, you keep in the Roth, and the ones that go down in value, of course, you recharacterize. Uh, that is a risk-free look at the Roth IRA. Um, finally, there's a lot of discussion regarding oil and gas investments. Um, basically, why do people rush to these oil and gas investments? Because one way to avoid having taxable income is by creating deductions. Under the law, you're allowed to take what are called IDCs, the tangible drilling costs as a deduction, in the year you incur those. And there's an exception to the passive loss rules, which means you can put those on your return in the year that, uh, you incur them if you indeed you're a general partner. Now, there's a limitation for AMT purposes, but you should be able to avoid that as long as you keep these deductions below 40% of your AMTI. Now, so intangible drilling costs provide an immediate income tax benefit, generally um, 80 to 90% of the initial investment. And then there is depletion um, and depreciation you're going to pick up. Um, so oil and gas investments can be very efficacious. Uh, we have covered a lot of ground in this final podcast. Um, these four podcasts together should be able to get us thinking about ideas in the advanced bracket management area. Um, it, this truly does require a paradigm shift, a quantum leap in our thinking of what we should be doing for clients going forward. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler discussing advanced bracket management. Thank you for joining us today.